Welcome back to a second series of Leash Connects podcasts, where we meet more of the dedicated people who are there to support you and your community in the wonderful county of Leash. So my guests today are Morna Carroll and Sean Gorman. Morna is the coordinator and Sean is the children and young person support and development worker with Leash Domestic Abuse Service, which supports women and children affected by domestic abuse in County Leash. Guys, you're both very welcome. Can we start by talking about domestic abuse? Like, what is it? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Who experiences it? Like, where does it start? When does it come into your relationship? In your experience, Morna? Okay, so in my experience, that can be one of the biggest issues with people identifying what they're experiencing. Because domestic abuse, from what I've seen, looks very different to lots of different people. It manifests very differently. People have vastly different experiences of domestic abuse, but all of those experiences are valid and can often fit into the criteria, if you like, or the definition of domestic abuse. What we work with in our service is intimate partner abuse. So we're quite clear about that, that domestic abuse for us, if you want to define it in these terms, is intimate partner abuse. It's an abuse that occurs between two adults in an intimate partner relationship. I think for years, the words or the terms domestic abuse and domestic violence have been used interchangeably. But I think as we roll on and as time rolls on, people are more and more becoming aware of the fact that those terms, they don't seem to represent or they don't seem to hold much meaning for people who actually experience the abuse. They're kind of all-encompassing terms that have lost meaning, really. People can't relate to. I think the term that's now being used that I think is much more helpful is coercive control. Coercive control is a term that's used to describe a range of behaviours that limit your life, essentially. Limit your life choices. Coercive control is marked by deprivation. So deprivation of independence, deprivation of your autonomy to make choices, deprivation of essentials like food, electricity. It's the monitoring. Some people will describe it as a drip effect. So it's that drip, drip, drip of everyday things. Monitoring you, watching your social media, asking you who was on the phone, asking you why you're going out to put the bins out. Are you really going out to put the bins out? Or are you actually going out to meet somebody? Undermining you, belittling you, making you just feel bad about yourself in general. I think coercive control is probably a better term to me to use. I think how it feels, I think you start to feel childlike sometimes. Domestic abuse, domestic violence, coercive control, it's about power and control. If you have your power taken away from you, if you are controlled, if you're monitored, or at least if you feel that way, you can start to feel like your life is regressing. And you can start to feel a bit like a grown-up child. It also feels very lonely. It's extremely lonely and isolating because generally speaking, women will tell us that they feel too embarrassed to talk to people within their circles about domestic abuse or about what they're experiencing and their family too, for lots of different reasons. So it can be very lonely, very, very very lonely existence. What are those reasons then? Fear of judgment, I think, is huge. I think cultural reasons too. There's still that thing out there of, you know, you made your bed, lie in it. You made a choice however many years ago to be with this fella. You knew what you were getting into. Why are you now all of a sudden naming this as domestic abuse and deciding you don't want to be there anymore? Do people always know what they're getting into? Of course not. Who in their right mind would meet somebody and be able to foresee 
that they were going to experience domestic abuse or coercive control and stick with it. I mean, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't. I think the whole point of coercive control and domestic abuse is that people are groomed. You're groomed into the relationship or when you're in the relationship initially, you know, you're groomed and you start to depend on this person and trust them and believe them. And over time as well, they become it they become the centre of your world. And that's no accident. That's orchestrated. That's manipulated. That's done on purpose. So no, absolutely not. Of course you can't know this. Sometimes there's warning signs. I often wonder, you know, how can you know when a warning sign flashes up? How can you know that that's a warning sign? Unless you're somebody maybe in our position where we've worked with this issue for many years and, you know, we've come to learn and we've come to know and be able to identify what the warning signs are. But if you're somebody where this is maybe your first unhealthy relationship, how can you know? You can't. So there's no education as such preparing people what to watch out for, what to look out for. Certainly not that I'm aware of. I mean, I came through the Irish education system. I was never, not for a moment, was I taught what to look out for what an unhealthy relationship might consist of, what are the red flags, what should you not do, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, what's okay to be asked, what's not okay to be asked of. None of that was ever discussed with us when we were kids, certainly. Well, certainly in the school I went to, it wasn't. And from what I know of now, yes, there's efforts being made to include that content in the education system, but I don't think it goes anywhere near enough. I really don't. Can I ask Sean, in your experience working with children and young people, so say, pick young people, say young teenagers, 12, 13, 14, have they come to learn that this is how relationships function? I think they can, yes, absolutely. And it's, as Marna was saying, it's not just relying on one or two incidents. That's the thing about the term domestic abuse or domestic violence. It makes you think that it has to be dependent on a specific violent act or a specific abusive trait. But it's not. It's it's more of an environment, I think, that you just get used to. It's about feeling too afraid to ask for something you need or too intimidated to go see friends and family. And growing up in an environment like that as a child, you're constantly developing, you're constantly learning. And if that's what you're learning, of course, yeah, it's going to spill into how you think a relationship is going to feel and act. Is violence or the threat of violence always present? Is that always a feature? I think often it is. From my experience, I think... There's an intimidation. I mean, the great majority of women that we work with and have worked with over the years, they haven't experienced physical violence. They haven't been, you know, physically abused. And that is the majority. The threat might have been looming. That may be there in the background. But for the most part, women that I've come to know over the years in Leash Domestic Abuse Service, certainly, no, they've not experienced physical violence or been violated physically. But it's that everyday drip effect that Sean talked about, like living in that environment, that oppressive environment, the tension. You hear people talk about, you know, being able to cut the air with a knife. It's that kind of tension. It's also not knowing where the day is going to land. Abusers, I think, thrive in uncertainty, in situations where, you know, the family can be kept in an uncertainty. And one thing that we've learned very, very clearly from that is that if people are kept in an uncertain space, they'll become more insecure. If you become more insecure, you become more dependent and also lack confidence. You lose your confidence, you lose your self-esteem. An awful lot of people lately have been speaking to us about a kind of a fear of being exposed 
by him. If you dig down a little bit deeper into the issue, there seems to be a real fear, certainly at the moment, it's quite pervasive around feeling exposed. And that can be anything from quite literally being exposed in terms of online revenge, you know, revenge porn or revenge videos of whatever kind, revenge images. I know Coco's law has been passed, but there's still that threat there. Women still fear it. They're terrified of it because often abusers will coerce their partners into producing or making certain types of videos or producing certain types of images that are then used against them later. But it's also a fear of exposure with their families. Women often are terrified that they won't be believed. Yeah, being exposed, it's a very vulnerable position to be in, to fear that exposure. This is a subject I've covered in a couple of different podcasts, in Westmeath Talks with Esker House and in Longford with the Longford Domestic Abuse Service. And one of the conversations we had in Longford was the impact that it has on children. What impact in your experience, Sean, do you see that it has on children and young people growing up in that type of oppressive environment? The main thing I've seen so far is the response to threat and their trauma response. So if they think that they can't act out or express themselves emotionally without some sort of violent or intimidating repercussions, it spirals into anxiety as you develop. It can spiral into mood disorders, depression, sleep disorders, eating disorders. It can affect them in so many different ways. It's like living with that phrase, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. And I'm sure plenty of people have heard that growing up, but it's... Quite it's, a few times. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But that can be said, but living with that 24-7, it has to affect you. I've found when children come to me, they treat it as if they're walking on thin ice. And every step is primarily to make sure that it's okay, it's safe. You have to give them that footing. If they can trust the ice, then they'll begin to trust their own footing. They'll begin to trust themselves and get used to expressing themselves, looking at themselves as an individual without that threatening environment around them. One of my interests with the Longford podcast was what type of behaviours could maybe a school teacher observe that may be maybe getting misunderstood? Like could a child be acting out in a certain way and it gets perceived as just being maybe defiant or bold or bad behaviour as opposed to, you know, the kids behaving in a certain way because of the environment that they've just come in from? Of course, there's always the problem child in the class, you know, but you have to look beyond that and what might be causing it. There's loads of different signs you could observe, whether it's physical or emotional, constantly seeking approval or reassurance, dependence on social circles, friends and the approval of a teacher. The obvious ones that are easy to spot, like bruising and cutting and marks, they're easy to spot. But as a teacher, it's hard to see a child act up and not respond with, OK, they're just acting up to act up, to look beyond that and see, OK, well, what's causing that? And as a teacher, it's difficult because your job is to educate and to look after the children in the class in that regard. So it's, it's hard for them to look beyond it. I couldn't blame them for missing one or two things, but I think education on the effect that domestic abuse and domestic violence, these things have on children is key to actually pushing these things forward and creating more of an awareness as a teacher or a principal or even as a school counsellor. Do you think more than there should be more done to create an awareness within the community? Yeah, I do. And I think if you don't mind me just adding to what Sean was saying about, you know, the schools and, you know, identifying or being able to see a behaviour that could indicate that there's domestic abuse in the home, that that child is experiencing childhood domestic abuse. I think the other thing that we learned, mainly through training, I would say, as opposed to on the ground work, is that an awful lot of children as well who are seemingly perfect, 
or trying to be perfect. That's probably not the correct way or, or a helpful way to describe this. But children and young people who are very high achievers or children and young people who really keep the head down, try not to draw attention to themselves, do everything they can to blend you know, get good grades or good marks, you know, make sure their uniform is right, proper. All of those behaviours, I suppose, they can also be indicative of domestic abuse. You know, that thing of ruling with an iron fist. You know, you're terrified of going home with any kind of report to daddy or anything that could be seen as a trigger to more abuse. So there are a lot of children who are high achieving or who seemingly blend away into the background that that also could be experienced in domestic abuse at home. It's a very, very difficult thing for teachers to do, I think, to categorically or concretely be able to say, well, that child clearly is experiencing childhood domestic abuse. There's so many different factors and it's messy. It's really messy business. I think one of the biggest barriers that I've seen over the years around community response not just teachers in schools, but in general communities coming together and and acting on domestic abuse is language. I think that's one of the biggest barriers. I think people often feel worried about the language they're using, that it's not appropriate or it's not politically correct. People feel out of touch, maybe, with what language they should or could use. Because I suppose, really, to be fair, unless you're working with this, maybe not day in, day out, but unless this is somewhere on your periphery, And unless this is something that you're used to being around, I I mean the issue of domestic abuse, you couldn't be expected to know or understand what language to use. But people feel really, really self-conscious about it. And when they feel self-conscious about it, I think then they often lack confidence in talking about it. And the thing we need to do around domestic abuse is talk. That's the key. I really, really, deep in my heart, I believe that. And in my head too, I really feel that if we could talk about it more, break down some of the embarrassment around it, break down some of the lack of confidence and the self-consciousness around it and the fear of judgment and the terror that comes with something that's so private and intimate being discussed. It does require a person then you know, say from an outsider to be a little nosy or, you know, to be willing to take that risk. Very often in some of the training I've delivered in the area of mental health, you know, the training sort of encourages people to be that little bit nosy, you know, to be able to, are you sure you're okay? You don't sound the best. You're not looking your best. So it requires you to have a wee bit of robustness to go beyond maybe a social norm, you know, the social boundary that says, no, you can't talk about that. But do you agree with that, Sean? Do you think that you maybe have to maybe ask a question that maybe you wouldn't feel comfortable asking. Absolutely. And it's not just asking, but it's to be willing to listen once the question is asked, to listen to what they're saying, because it's wanting to get the information, but there's responsibility that comes with that then. If somebody is opening up to you with something this big, this important to them, you have to be there to listen. And it mightn't always require a grand gesture on your behalf. You don't have to ride in on your white horse and save the day. It could just be to give them that space, to give them options. If it is bad enough, maybe to report it if there's marks or bruises, you know, you don't have to worry about staying in your lane and just handling your own thing. But there is a responsibility when you talk to somebody and when somebody opens up with this kind of thing. And look, even if it's just saying, You might be ready to talk about it now, but I'm here for when you are. That's the biggest thing. It's not just children that treat it as if they're stepping on ice. It's the women as well. Is help effective, Morna? Of course it is. Absolutely. Yeah. What does help look like? It looks very different 
depending on your circumstances. So like we were talking about before, domestic abuse can look very different in lots of different families. So the help inevitably will look different too. I think you'd be surprised when you'd sit down and speak to somebody who's experiencing domestic abuse. If you're just, I mean, in general, you'll be told that woman may not come out and say, I'm experiencing domestic abuse. That clearly, the way I've just said it. But she'll tell you, she will tell you, you just have to be perceptive and you listen. I think that's the key. Sean just, I think, hit the nail on the head. It's listening skills that are needed. So yes, to have the confidence in the language you can use, but also I think the listening piece is crucial. And I think in terms of help, that's really what help looks like, Anthony. It's listening. It's being open in a sensitive way to what that woman is telling you and that child or young person and being prepared to walk with them. An awful lot of the time, we're not in a position to be able to simply pick up that victim of abuse from their dangerous space and put them somewhere securely safe. We can't do that. We don't have the resources, the skills. I also don't think it would be appropriate to. But what we can do is walk with that person. We can walk alongside them. So help can be anything from sitting down and talking through the problem and what they've experienced and being open and available to them to do that. It can be helping them get to court to get legal protections that they might need. It can be going to the guards with them, talking them through a process or a procedure that they might be able to go and apply for. It can be offering counselling. An awful lot of people who've experienced domestic abuse historically or in the past, in previous relationships, may choose not to go through the support piece of our work or the court piece of our work or the guards or the housing, but may actually just want to go straight into counselling. The first protocol is to ring the service. I suppose just talk it out and take it from there because there is no real clear route. It depends so much on your own So it's own like it's an organic process that comes with the person yeah. and the, the service. And it's led by them. I think that's the key. It's no different for us than it is a lot of other professionals or just people in the community who meet a family who are experiencing domestic abuse. You know, often women will contact us and they're not even sure what they want or maybe even what they need, but they have to talk. They just have this impulse or this really, really strong desire to talk to somebody, to share it, because they simply can't hold it on their own anymore or don't want to and certainly shouldn't have to. So often, you know, they'll call. Nothing might come of that initial conversation. It may simply be just a conversation around what's happening and then we will leave it so that they're welcome to call back, but certainly wouldn't push it. Sometimes it takes months for that woman to come back and follow up on that initial call. Can I ask, Morna, is it more of a male thing? Is it more of a male behaviour to be abusive within a relationship? Yes, it is. There's absolutely no question about that. Internationally, not just in Ireland. Absolutely, that's the experience. Because the world is set up to be patriarchal. That's the way we've evolved. It's absolutely crucial that responses to domestic abuse and services like ours are set up to be gender sensitive. Because yes, the large, large, large majority of victims of domestic abuse in intimate partner relationships are women and children. There's any amount of stats. And if you go online and you start Googling this, you'll find 50 different conflicting statistics around what the experience is for women and what the experience is for men. So you'll see one in four women experience domestic abuse, then you'll see one in seven men experience domestic abuse. But the reality is those statistics are massively flawed because the collection of the data is massively flawed. Often I think our anecdotal experience is far more solid and relevant and realistic than the stats you'll read in the papers. And there's absolutely no doubt that the experience is that women are victims far more often than men. 
I think the most solid statistic that I've seen is one in four women in Ireland will experience domestic abuse and one in nine, I think it is, men will experience domestic abuse. But how that looks is very different too. The experience of a woman is very different to the experience of a man who is a victim of domestic abuse. For example, for a woman, one of the most dangerous points for her in that relationship is one, when she's pregnant or if she's pregnant, and two, when she makes the decision to leave. Whereas for a man, the safest time for him is when he decides to leave. It's not usual. I'm not saying it, it doesn't happen, of course, but it's certainly not usual for a man who has made the decision to leave an abusive relationship to be at risk. So very different experiences. The dynamics are very different. And I think to have gender sensitive responses is absolutely crucial. Men deserve services. Of course they do. There should be services for men to support them. But undoubtedly, the majority of victims of domestic abuse are women and children. So can I ask then, Sean, like what can we be teaching our young boys to make sure that they don't go down that route of being a perpetrator or being abusive or controlling or intimidating within relationships from a young age. I think empathy is a big thing. I think to put yourself in the other person's shoes to look at, okay, I wouldn't like this done to me. I wouldn't want this in my relationship. So why am I putting it out there? Reflection is a big thing as well. To look back on yourself and to see, okay, how is her behavior changing and how much of an impact do I have on that? But it's hard, especially as a young boy, because it can depend on what you've grown up around as well. As a male, it's hard to look at those statistics and see it primarily a male issue. But it's not just a thing where a man can say, OK, well, I'm not an abuser, so the light's off me. It's being in a social circle where there is an abuser and it's what you choose to excuse from your friends. So if you know a man that is an abuser or a perpetrator in a relationship, choosing to excuse that behaviour on his behalf isn't right either. It's kind of that thing of overlooking, isn't it? Like, you know, yeah. it, it's it's everyone's responsibility not to overlook it. Absolutely. Don't ignore the jokes. Mm -hmm. isn't, that, isn't that kind of so part I, I of was my, like my natural question to ask you then is, how would I know that I'm in the company of somebody that is a perpetrator of abuse? Like, what are the telltale signs? Or is there telltale signs? Oh, there's always telltale signs and it does come in the form of jokes or something that's passed off as, oh, well, I'm not really serious, but I guarantee you every man has heard somebody say jokingly. So the derogatory type jokes. Yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. And it's just that it's laughed off and excused and it's just saying, oh, he's only messing or he'd never really do that. But you can't just treat it as it's always going to be a joke. There's always the threat there. And it's mocking, it isn't is. it, Sean? Yeah. There's a taboo, rightly around a lot of inappropriate jokes and inappropriate statements and inappropriate articulation of thoughts. And that should be there. And I agree with that. But it doesn't seem to have extended to women. I still think sexist conversations and sexist content is out there in an approved way, almost. Right. So if you hear a sexist joke or you hear somebody mocking women or trying to humiliate them or speaking about women in an inappropriate way, not necessarily about their partner, but just in general, if you challenge that inevitably you're going to be called a real party pooper. You've no sense of humour. Oh God, do you have to be so serious? You know, you're just really seen as, as, yeah, a party pooper and somebody who takes themselves way too seriously. But if we don't challenge that language and if we don't challenge that way, we're not going to get anywhere. We're not going to be able to challenge the deeper issues of domestic abuse and gender-based violence and misogyny. Misogyny is laughed off a lot. And if you call it 
especially for a man to call it. I think it's harder. I'm going to admit it. It, it is harder, I think, for a man to call misogyny. Even with the advice as a young man when you're getting into a relationship, if you know, you're know you love bombing and making all these romantic gestures and it's not received well, I've even got the advice, oh, just hang in there, be persistent, you'll win her over. And that's it. And it's treated as more of a prize rather than a person that you're trying to have a relationship with. And that's the thing. If it's rejected, it can be met with negative emotions from a male point of view. You think, okay, well, I'm doing all this, so she's the problem if she's not liking it. Let's talk about love bombing. Tell me what love bombing looks like. It can be those romantic gestures that you see in movies, you know, showing up with the flowers, the box of chocolates and saying all the right things, doing all the right things. It can be just putting on a front or a screen, really just saying, oh, look how good the relationship can be. And here's what I can offer you. But it's empty gestures. That's the problem, I think, is these things are romanticized way too much. You see it in movies, you hear it in songs, and it's just about being overly persistent and thinking of, you know, your own gestures and how you can basically win someone over if you just try hard enough or push hard enough. So should, you know, young people or anyone in a relationship or starting out in a relationship be a little bit cautious with the flowers and the chocolates and the... Yeah, absolutely. It's, the compliments. It, yeah, of course, because it's not those things you want to get into a relationship with, it's the person. And to take your time to get to know the person that you're investing so much time into, I think that's the important thing when you're looking at a relationship, who you're getting in the relationship with and not what the relationship is based on in regards to treats and flowers and dates. What more can parents do to maybe create an awareness around the subject, Morna, for their children, male or female, to protect them or help protect them or even help them protect themselves? Well, the one thing that's been floating around in my mind for the last few minutes as you've been talking about that is modelling. The single most effective thing a parent can do or an adult can do, guardian, whoever, grandmother, whoever it might be, is to model healthy relationships because ultimately... That's where children learn most about how relationships work, what's okay, what's not okay. So I think if you can model a healthy relationship for your children, my own opinion is that's probably the single most helpful and loving thing you can do for that child. I really, really think that. I also think just in terms of that love bombing piece, you're told, you're sold a picture in popular culture of how you should behave in relationships. And it often doesn't align particularly well with what we would say is a healthy relationship or, or a healthy way to be in a relationship. And I think if you can urge your young people or your children to really examine why they're behaving the way they're behaving in the relationship. So, you know, this thing of bombarding somebody with gifts and flowers. Well, well, why are you doing that? Are you doing that to curry favour? And are you doing that to bring them round to your way of thinking on something? and possibly to coerce them. I know that's a very strong word, but to coerce them into something. Or are you doing it because you know she loves forget-me-nots or you know she's absolutely nuts about white chocolate or you know she particularly loves the smell of, you know, the sea whatever it might be. So, you know, why are you doing it? So I think Sean hit the nail on the head earlier when he was talking about reflection, the importance of reflection and the importance of empathy. I would echo that in this as well, that I think if parents can spend a little bit of time with their young people and their children, helping them and guiding them to be able to examine their reasons behind 
doing what they're doing. I think that's massively helpful because a lot of young people and children have never been taught how to do that. How do we teach our children that then? Actually to sit down with them and talk to them about how you do it. You know, so it's a bit like learning how to meditate in a way. Am I, am yes, I off yeah, the mark absolutely. on that, Sean? Or would you? Yeah, so yeah. it's actually to sit down and say, right, so Anthony, when this happens, what do you do? Concrete examples, real situations. I suppose that's reflection, isn't it, in a way? So you're using a reflective practice a way of reflecting, you're helping your child to understand how to reflect in a positive way, in a way that can be helpful for their personal development and can help them to avoid the pitfalls that maybe they've experienced so far. So to sit down and actually reflect on a situation that has happened and how they could maybe improve on that or how they could do things a bit differently and examine why did you think that that was a good idea? You talked to me a little bit about why you thought that was a good idea or maybe that person would have liked that. And in doing that, if you do that gently, I think it can result in some real change if you have a young person or a child that you're worried about. And certainly in terms of young women, if you're the parent or the guardian or you have a young woman in your life, a girl, child or whatever it might be. I think talking to them about their boundaries, about how far is far enough and where's their line? Where does it end and where does it start for them? So when have they had enough? Where is enough? Where is not OK? Is this a conversation, Sean, you think should happen in schools? It is absolutely in and out of schools. I know as a young male, especially maybe it's an Irish thing, but it's hard to talk to your parents about relationships. I've always found it difficult anyway to talk about, OK, well, God, this is going wrong or I've tried this and it's not working. So maybe to speak to somebody outside of the home as well, because it's always easier to talk to a stranger or a teacher or a counsellor because maybe you're just not used to having that space at home or you're worried about being judged or something like that. So I think, yeah, absolutely schools have a huge role to play, but it's just figuring out how to do that effectively. And the reason why I asked one of my sons, he's in fifth class and he's at that stage where they've been told about certain things. Girls have been brought out and told other things by the other teachers and the boys are standing around wondering what they're talking about. And just from looking through the different lesson plans, I do think there's a space there about relationships, about what's appropriate. Not just touch, they talk about touch, but attitude in how you interact with each other. Even having that conversation about power. Because I certainly know, like my son, like he understands what those words mean. It's very different teaching children about sex and teaching them about relationships. Two very, very different things. Guys, thank you so much for coming in to chat with us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to your next podcast. Until then, Slán Gofáil.